this Sunday morning, we are taking a break from Luke. So it's actually with our service last week at Redeemer. It's two weeks uh, taking a break. Uh, you have heard, and we've been talking about it for a while. This evening is our particularization service where we become our own particular church. And uh, I actually uh, won't really have much to do in that service. I mean, I, I take some vows, and answer some questions. I, I receive a charge, but uh, I'm taking this morning as opportunity to speak to us becoming our own particular church. And, and as I've thought over these last even months of moving up to this point, there's, there's been a lot of like beautiful reflection and rejoicing, and we've done these things with Redeemer, who we've been a part of for so long, and we'll continue to stay very connected to them, so we're, we're encouraged by that. We're not leaving all of that behind, but it certainly gives opportunity for reflection, both as a family now living here nine years, it was nine years this week that we moved here, nine years ago this week, uh, we've had opportunity to reflect on that, to think about the church, and, and it inevitably uh, has caused uh, me to ask that question, you know, what, why are we here? And, and I, I, I think, you know, maybe like, why am I here as we think back to now nine and a half years ago when we were deciding, should we pursue the church in Indianapolis or pursue this church in Orange County, California? Very different, I think, experiences uh, that we've had being here, and, and we're incredibly thankful that we're here and not there. Uh, but it, it's like, so why am I even a pastor, and why do I think about doing this uh, in the different places that we've done it, and, and why am I excited about staying here and, and being a part of this as we move forward, right? And then as a church, why are you here? This is a question that we could all ask. It's a Sunday morning. And the, the weather is nice today, and uh, maybe you could have been still asleep, or you could be out enjoying uh, brunch uh, somewhere, right? Like, why, why are you here? Why are we here? Right? What, what is this, this about? And this is really a question that we should be regularly asking, but Paul gets to the root of some of this for us in this passage. Why are we here? And, uh, you know, I'm going to give away a little bit of uh, where we're headed, but he gives us the answer pretty early on. It's the cross of Christ. We're here because of the cross of Christ. And, and the cross of Christ is uh, his work that we celebrate each and every week at the Lord's Supper, where we remember that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. This was a part of the confession today from the New City Catechism, some of the reality of God, the Redeemer, uh, or the Redeemer being God. And coming as a man, like these kind of things that are a little bit, a little bit odd, right? Let's be honest. They, they feel odd if we think about them. And some people think they're crazy. Uh, it seems like folly, right? But these are the things that we believe and we confess and we gather around uh, every single Sunday. And the cross, for us, accomplished forgiveness. Forgiveness of our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion against God so that we could then be in relationship with him. The cross, which is about suffering, and we're called into that same suffering, we're called to take up our cross daily, it seems like foolishness, right? And yet that's this central thing that, that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that is central to the life and the work of Jesus, that is central to all of Scripture, in fact. It is the reason that we gather. It is the reason that we gather on Sundays. It's the reason that we live lives in the way that we live them, the cross of Christ. 
And as he talks about the cross and the fact that it seems like foolishness to, to many, he, he does this, this, this word play on wisdom. And he talks about, in fact, even in sometimes the same verse, verse 21, for example, he uses wisdom in two different ways. The wisdom of God and then the wisdom of man. So the wisdom of God is this, this larger overarching plan, and he contrasts it with the wisdom of the world. And so our two points here are going to be the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. Uh, pretty simple, the world's wisdom and, and God's wisdom. And, uh, and hopefully it's this reminder of why we do what we do, why we are a church, why we've been here for the last uh, eight and a half years as a church, why we are uh, becoming our own church and moving forward and continuing to do many of the same things. It's because of uh, God's wisdom that reveals the cross of Christ to us. Let me pray and we'll take a look. Lord, I do pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your wisdom and that you would thwart ours, uh, which is so often truly foolishness. Meet us here in this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I, I do think it might be helpful to to get an idea of how he's using wisdom here. How do we understand even what wisdom is as we contrast the world's wisdom and God's wisdom? Ultimately, well, I've heard wisdom described biblically as the art of godly living. The art of godly living. And and what that gets at is the, the reality of what is ultimately true and what ultimately matters, where we find meaning in life. So there's a, there's a contrast between wisdom and knowledge. There's a, there's a difference between just knowing things and then actually knowing the truth behind things. So the, the real questions that we ask as we gather on Sunday morning is, what is truly meaningful in this world? What is meaningful about us as human beings? Where does value really lie? Not just knowledge of how do things work, and what do we know about the world, but, but more of the why behind it all and the ultimate truth behind it all. What, what, really, what really matters? What is really true? It, 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 I heard an illustration recently that kind of contrasted knowledge and, and wisdom, this, this need that we have to know more than just about certain things. So um, you might have heard in the last two weeks Scholars believe they, they know what Stonehenge was about. And if you're not familiar with Stonehenge, this collection of very large uh, rocks in England that were brought over from Ireland. And for centuries, really, people have speculated as to what Stonehenge was for. And they have determined that it was a solar calendar. But for years, and I'm, I'm sure there's still disagreement about whether or not that's the case, but for years, there's this, this question. People want to know, why was it there? Who made it and why, right? And, and yeah, it's great to say, okay, well, this stone is made from these minerals, and so it came from this place in Ireland, and, and we know that, that it took these steps to get it here, and it's in this soil and placed in relationship to the sun in this way. And you could know all of those facts, but still not know the why or who. And, and that's really what people want to know, why and who. They don't just want to know the facts about Stonehenge that, that we have known for so long. They want to know why is it there. And so it's the same as we begin to understand our world more and more, the, the how it operates, as we begin to have uh, telescopes going into outer space and giving us more information about the world, as we begin uh, to see more understanding 
more about the brain, but still not a lot. We, we, we know more of how things work, but we, it still doesn't tell us the why and the who. And this idea of wisdom is this reality that we, we are told by God in his word revealed to us the why and the who, these ultimate deep things. And so as we think about that definition of wisdom, we, we recognize that the world's wisdom stands often against Christianity in contrast to and, and often adversarially against Christianity. And so this is actually in, in our current culture more and more the case. Now, this has been the case throughout the world and throughout history that we have experienced that on a little bit lesser degree in our lifetime. This is true for me. And I've talked about the fact that in my lifetime, so the same for many of you, our culture has moved from a positive relationship with Christianity to more neutral to, to now a fairly negative uh, relationship to Christianity. It's, it's, it's culturally negative uh, to be a Christian in many circumstances that we live in now. That's just the change in culture, right? And so uh, it's more common to hear rants against Christianity. Uh, and that's more acceptable than it would have been uh, in w- when we were growing up. We certainly knew those that, that thought it was crazy or that were crazy, but it just is more and more the case, right? And so you can easily find rants against Christianity and, and some from very famous people, right? So uh, I, I, there were some that I was already aware of, but then I just did a little bit of the Google uh, and quickly found, you know, Ricky Gervais, actor, rants against Christianity, Bill Maher, uh, like talk show host, rants against Christianity, Joe Rogan hosts the um, most popular podcast, I think, in existence, um, multiple rants against Christianity, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, famous uh, atheist who writes uh, about atheism and in that process rants against Christianity. And, and the reality is, I mean, uh, to, to lesser or greater degrees, some of these uh, things that you hear are pretty smart. Uh, a lot of it based in some real knowledge. And again, uh, each of those might fall into a different category along the scale there. But uh, there are also people who are a lot smarter than the four of them that would, would speak vehemently against Christianity, right? So the wisdom of the world often uh, is used to uh, position itself against Jesus, against the cross, against a creator God, uh, against a God that would have personal relationship with us. And, uh, and that's just a reality of the world that we live in. That's where the, the wisdom of the world often, often leads. And, and it helps us to, uh, at times, actually engage some of those things. So I've, you've heard me reference different resources over the years uh, that help us engage some of the uh, the, the things that might be said against Christianity, some of them which we, we don't have answers to. Let, you know, we have our own doubts, right? Like, so it's not just like, oh, it's them out there. Like, we deal with some of these same questions, and, and we will hear things, and particularly students as you get into high school and college, uh, you, you will hear professors, very smart people, uh, rant against Christianity and tell you why you shouldn't believe uh, in Jesus and a, a resurrected, in the resurrection at all, or all kinds of things that we believe, Right? So uh, it helps us to engage some of those things. Uh, Tim Keller has two books, The Reason for God, Making Sense of God, that really deal with a lot of questions that people have. Rebecca McLaughlin has a, it's a newer book. Uh, it's great, Confronting Christianity, uh, with some of the questions that people have about the faith. Um, there's a great book called, Is God a Moral Monster? Uh, which some people ask that question, right? And if, if we, we read 
uh, and hear and understand, okay, why they're asking that question. And Paul Copen deals with that and has got a moral monster. Those are just like the tip of the iceberg as far as resources for us to think through these things. But, but let's be honest, th- those things I think are most helpful for us dealing with some of our own questions. But the argument along those lines are not the way that we're drawn into the faith. It's not the way that our hearts are changed to follow Jesus. That, that is, is not the way that, that the Lord uh, operates. He uses some of those conversations sometimes to break down some of our plausibility structures and those kind of things. But we're, let, let's not think that we're going to, if we're followers of Jesus, argue others into the kingdom. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, please don't hear us trying to argue you into the kingdom. That's not the way that uh, it operates. It's not the way that the wisdom of God works. Um, so it, it's helpful to, to recognize sometimes uh, the realities of the, the, the conflict, but to recognize that it's not about engaging uh, just on a, a level. We, the reality is we all have what we call presuppositions. We all presuppose certain things to be true, no matter where we are, or who we are. Uh, and it's helpful to actually recognize what some of those things are. So we're not arguing one another into the kingdom. The, but the wisdom often of the world often sets itself up, and it's just helpful to realize the reality that it sets itself up against Jesus, against the cross of Christ. But let's recognize that as followers of Jesus, even those of us who confess him and are a part of the church, we often take the wisdom of the world and we try to apply it uh, to our experience uh, in the church. What what do I mean by that? We, we, We look at the wisdom of the world and what it says success is, and then we begin to apply that to the church. We begin to think that uh, the, the wisdom of the world is going to help us in the church. And, and yet, what we're told is um, that, that there's this difference, right? And, and we're called to something, something different. We may have had the unfortunate experience of being in a church that is successful in the worldly sense. What defines a successful church, right? Is it... The numbers, the numbers of people on a Sunday morning, the numbers that are given each week or in a year, the number of conversions. Uh, is it um, uh, the, the influence in the broader neighborhood? What defines a successful church? Uh, and oftentimes, uh, the church, even those in the church, define it by worldly standards. And there's a danger there in particular. And, and, and fortunately, I think this is being talked about uh, more often now, but there's, there's a, a potential danger of excusing sin because there's success, right? So we say, oh, well, there's success here. Whatever that, however we define that according to the world standards, and so we can, we can excuse the sin. If that could be leaders in the church, and that has happened, or it can just be the direction of the church or decisions that are being made because things are being successful in the eyes of, of the world. And that's the wisdom of the world, and it's standing in contrast to the wisdom of God. And, and, and let's be honest, we, we, need some, we need some wisdom, some understanding the art of godly living to even know uh, how that might play out. Because if, if uh, we look at the broader scope and the recognition that this happens sometimes, that, that, uh, that sin and leadership in the church is sometimes excused because of success, we recognize that sometimes the, the reaction to that is just to reject all authority which is another trend that's happening in, uh, in the culture today. And we need wisdom to know 
when we are pursuing godly authority and leadership or following godly authority and leadership or whether it is uh, sinful and turning against the wisdom of God. But the standard of the world and its measure for success is not the answer. And that should actually be encouraging to us. Because look at uh, verse 20 here. Well, let's go back to 19. God has told us, he's given this promise, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What's he saying here? It's a, it's a little bit, and don't, not in a snarky way, but how's that working out for you? Not in a, oh yeah, how's that working? But like, is that working? Is the wisdom of the world actually working for us? And that, that could be whether it's a, uh, somebody who's standing against Christianity or not. If we look at the wider world and the wisdom that would give us all the confidence of success and all these things and the, how that's been impacted by the pandemic or by war or by the economy changing in the way it does. Oftentimes, the wisdom of the world is shown to be foolish just on its own standards because we're out of control. We don't have control uh, of the world not even of our own lives. So the danger for us becomes that if success, according to the worldly standard, the world's wisdom, is where we find value or worth or meaning, that puts all kinds of pressure upon us. We're going to be in big trouble. And again, whether you're talking about in the church or out of the church, if we have to create success for ourselves, if we have to create in our own culture now, our own identity, separate from anybody else's. We've got to figure that out ourselves. It's all up to us, right? We create our own identity. This is what the world tells us. And it's also got to be successful. There is intense pressure there. And then there's intense shame when we don't make it, when we don't live up to the standard that either we've set for ourselves or that we've allowed others to set for us. But what we find here is that, uh, that we're called into a different kind of wisdom that actually covers shame, covers the pressure to succeed according to the worldly standards, that, that takes away the insecurity that we have because it actually finds the security in him and, again, in the cross of Christ. Because ultimately, the wisdom of the world is foolishness. I, I could have actually titled this The Foolishness of the World and the Foolishness of God. Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God, and he is being hyperbolic here, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What he's saying, he's saying there's such a large divide between God and the way that he works and men and the way we work that he's saying God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of men, that, that his foolishness, and he doesn't have foolishness, right? He doesn't have folly. It's all wisdom. But his, he, he is making this point that his foolishness is uh, is wise because there's such a gap between us and him. We, we, we find this, uh, this, this reality that we're living really actually in a different reality. We're living in a different economy than what God has actually created and set up for us. I, I couldn't help but think of, um, of Harry Potter, uh, as uh, I do on occasion. Um, so in, in, in our world, right, in a lot of movies and books, the British prime minister has a lot of power. 
Uh, he is an important person. And the same would be true of the president of the United States. World leaders have a lot of power, right? And, and you can hear all kinds of stories or watch a lot of movies where the, the fate of the world will depend on the decision that the, the British prime minister makes, right? It's a really big deal. But Harry Potter is this whole different world, right? So the British prime minister uh, is actually this, this a little bit foolish character, so that when the, the British prime minister uh, has to meet with the minister of magic, so the first time it happens uh, in Harry Potter, Cornelius Fudge, the minister of magic, uh, goes and he meets with the British prime minister. And the British prime minister uh, is a little bit of a foolish character because he doesn't even, he's like scared of the magic. He doesn't understand the way that it works. He's living in this whole different world, Right. And so the minister of magic comes in and says, uh, your world is not what you think it is. And your power is not what you think it is. There's, there's a whole other thing going on that matters a lot more that you have zero control over. And by the way, there's an evil wizard, Voldemort, that is, uh, you know, he's, he's killing muggles. Muggles are people that don't have magic, right? The, the non-magic people. Um, and, uh, and there's this, this whole thing happening that you're not aware of. We're, we're essentially, we're the muggles. We think we're the British prime minister. We think we've got control of our lives. We think we have it figured out. And what Paul is telling us here, and what God is regularly telling us, is you, you, there's a whole different world going on. It's, it, it's not what you think it is. And, and you, are, you are going to be missing the reality if you continue to go down uh, the road of the world's wisdom. You're not going to get it. And let's be honest, okay? Uh, the foolishness of God, if we want to call it that. Um, it is foolish to the world. To the, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there's a contrast that the Bible regularly gives. Jesus gives it a lot to those who are following him and those who are not. And, uh, and there's a result of not following Jesus, and it is ultimate perishing, separated from God. And, and if that's the route we're going down, this is folly. If, if, if we're honest with ourselves and recognize the way that somebody might experience even one of our worship services, it seems weird, right? I mean, we sing songs out loud. That doesn't happen in a lot of, maybe some concerts that, that happens, but like we're all singing together. We have words written down for us to sing the song so that we, we confess things together. We read words out loud together. That's, that's a, little bit, a little bit weird. And then some of the things that we talk about, right? Like we've already sung. Um, we sung about my hope is built. My hope, my hope in life is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and, and righteousness. Like that, I mean... I, I get how that might seem foolish, right? That's a little bit, little bit weird, particularly without explanation. And hopefully we're, we're getting some of that already this morning, even in the song and in the confessions that we sing and the experience of the Lord's Supper. But there, there's oddness there. And we're going to be singing about um, that Christ will hold me fast, even when things are not going well. Christ, who has risen from the dead, and we're saying, now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's going to hold me fast. For my life, he bled and died. We're going to uh, sing in the last song, Christ has bruised the serpent's head. So 
we're, we're going back to the fall in Genesis 3 and this picture, of the, and, and this is a recognition that Satan is real and exists in this world, that there are spiritual forces that are uh, at play in our own lives. Like, we, we should recognize that that does seem, we, we probably do recognize that that seems foolish to some people who don't understand. And, and sometimes to us, and so we deal with our own doubts. It's why it's important for us to ask questions ourselves and engage some of these things. But what we find is that the cross, that is folly to others, the word of the cross is folly, verse 18, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it says that in verse 18, that it's the power of God. Then again in verse 24, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, and this is open to everybody, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The, the reference is, is back to the previous verse is the, the cross, Jesus Christ crucified, his sacrifice for us. It is for us wisdom and power. We're called into this sacrificial picture. And again, not just something that he did, but something that he calls us to live out. All kinds of ways that we're called to sacrificially live out the cross ourselves, to, to carry our own cross, to bear our cross, to carry it daily. Jesus has told us this is a part of our life. This is part of the pattern of our own life. It is available to us as power and wisdom because what does it bring? It brings salvation. And I, I really, I, I really, I'm thinking about this whole church thing, me being the pastor. I want to be thought of as somebody who speaks with eloquent words of wisdom. I, I want people to think, oh, what a, what a great preacher. And, and look what Paul says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But here's, here's the reality. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, meaning it's not anywhere else also. So it's just in Jesus, and it's just in him and the cross. It's not in my ability to preach or your ability to follow Jesus or to honor him or to be a good Christian or to get your life together. It's, it's all resting upon him. That's hope and power and wisdom for us in our lives and in everything that we do. So that there is then no longer a pressure to succeed according to the world's wisdom. Because there's a recognition that ultimately we're, we're not going to be able to live up to the standard. Standards we set for ourselves, standards that God has set for us. But because we don't, and because he loves us deeply, because he cares for us powerfully, he gives us this power that draws us into relationship with him, that allows us to be forgiven of our sin, to be in relationship with him. This is what the cross does for us. And that is for us hope and wisdom and power that it would change our lives. It would change the way that we, that we relate to one another. It would change the way that we think about that all that we experience, it would change the, the way that we put our trust in the things that we do or in other people so that we would turn and trust in him and find our hope in him. Let's pray.